Hey guys, and welcome to today's episode of Give It The Beans. Now, my guest today, I don't have any embarrassing stories about them, but I think if you were to see her, which you won't, uh, you could describe it as a jacked version of Barbie, but with the brains as well. So, you might see her on Instagram as Dr. Pixie Lifts, I'll know her as Rosie Tarbuck. Rosie, how are we doing? Very good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's lovely to be asked. Not a problem, not a problem. I think that today's episode will give the listeners a huge amount of value because a lot of the things that we'll talk about are very, very common within the bodybuilding scene, within the competing scene. But before we get into that, for anyone listening that perhaps doesn't know too much about you, I was wondering, could you give us a, a brief history of your sort of journey within bodybuilding so far, but also perhaps within education and your lead up to being a doctor, perhaps how that all sort of slotted in um i know i don't want to say make it brief i would say make it as long as you want um that would be fab sure sure no problem so i guess doctoring i've been doing that longer um i'll have been a doctor for five years um this year well 2020 um and in that time i worked in lots of different specialties i'm currently working in psychiatry um with a view to becoming a gp at some point oh fine. Uh, and that'll be sort of within the next 18 months. In that time, I've also studied with Mac Nutrition. So I'm qualified in nutrition as well. Just that was mainly for my own learning um, and to add a bit to, to my career path. And I will also soon be qualified in aesthetic medicine, Botox and fillers. Oh, wow, cool. <clears throat> so a few things going on. Um, in terms of bodybuilding, I've been competing now for four years. Um, I started out in the MBF in figure um, and I then recently transitioned to PCA in um, 2019 to train bikini. Fab, wicked. Now, I, I think if anyone out there has been through some issues we'll talk about, having someone who is a doctor speak about them is pretty well reputed it's not just someone coming on saying hey i love to just do hip thrusters and this is this is what i'd recommend so i just want to crack straight on with today's episode because i i want to pick your brain just as much as the listeners will want to hear exactly what you've got to say so the whole idea of today's episode was to talk about you know poor not poor relationships poor relationship with food as such but perhaps eating disorders versus disorder eating we're also going to touch on shift pattern working night shifts and and, and doing prep within that so to crack it off straight away could you give us a little bit of an idea of you mentioned off podcast uh, that you've had previous anorexia nervosa could you can you give the listeners a, a brief experience of what you went through but also how you overcome overcame that yourself um because you did tell me that you sort of self uh what's the word got got over it yourself and i think that for anyone listening they might find that amazing and i know i surely do so could you give listeners a little bit of an idea of what you've done and perhaps how that could help them if they're going through that themselves? Sure. I'm going to caveat this um, just by saying if you are struggling with problems with food, um, to seek professional help, first of all. So go to your doctor and get a good team around you. And also, this is my experience. So I'm, although I am a doctor, I'm by no means an expert in eating disorders, but my own experience has helped me understand understand my patients and understand myself I think going forwards and um, bodybuilding was important in my recovery as I'll sort of talk about so um, 
my kind of sporting background, I was a high-level long-distance runner. So I ran competitively and represented my university and the country. And I lived in Newcastle. Uh, so I studied down in Newcastle for five years and I studied medicine. Um, and it was around that time that I began restricting my own food intake um, and dropping weight. Now, it started pretty insidiously, as I think most eating disorders tend to. And because part of the aesthetic of a long distance runner is being small and light and efficient, sure. it went it went hand in hand that, you know, on the face value, I was running a lot and I was losing a bit of weight, but I was still doing really well at university. I was still going out with my friends and I was still doing well in my sporting performance. However, as time went on, um, I began to more kind of isolate myself socially and my food went from restrictive but still quite healthy to very restrictive. And it was at that time I started counting calories, which I'd never done before. And up until that point, I'd been pretty healthy and well and, you know, ate a normal diet. Um, I think what's different in my journey than some people that struggle with eating disorders is that I, I never thought I was fat. Um, I never looked myself in the mirror and thought you need to lose weight. And I never have been overweight. It was more the fact that my life at the time was very stressful. My degree was very full on and I was quite lonely at university. Um, and it was a way of controlling my thoughts and my emotions. And it was something extrinsic that I could focus on. And that was the way that it went. And so the, the kind of people talk about a voice in your head, there's not really one, but there becomes an internal persona that says, you know, you might have had a rubbish day, you might have, this might have been stressful, but you're doing well at this. And it became something that I found comfort in. Sure. Um, and it took about a year for me to seek help. And I did that independently. Um, at that point, I'd stopped visiting my family because I didn't want them to see how ill I'd become. Um, but I was struggling to stay awake and focus on my lectures. Um, my race performance had started to go down and there was one day when I was out on a long training run on a Sunday and I had a sudden pain in my pelvis and it, <clears throat> it fractured. So oh, wow. it, had, it had gone right through my pubic ramus and fractured, which is kind of the girdle around your hips and holds everything in, had just broken sure. because I had osteoporosis from the anorexia. Wow. And it was at that point I thought, this has to stop because now I can hardly do my degree. I can't do my sport anymore. And I'll never be a doctor and I can't help anyone else if I can't get better. Yeah. And that was the trigger for me was, you know, this is going to be a huge waste if I've been through all this and I can't even help anyone. Yeah, 100%. So I guess that's, that's kind of what happened in a nutshell. Um, that was a huge ramble. But in terms of recovery, I found the NHS wasn't massively helpful. Um, I went to my GP and I was referred on to a specialist centre and I waited months to go and see them. And at that point, 
I was sort of marched in and bloods were taken and they told me if I lost another half kilo they would admit me and feed me and all of this and then I was sent off with some supplements to build me up and my next appointment was in two months time um and I just thought this isn't going to make me better do you know I'm scared of eating anything can, like can I ask you see in that moment you'd mentioned that you'd felt incredibly lonely and that sort of led to the the problem with or perhaps not eating enough but then you mentioned that you stopped going to see your family so did the sort of sense of loneliness get perhaps worse in the fact when you stopped seeing your family and then then cause it to deteriorate before you started the recovery or did it kind of go hand in hand it's a funny one because again this is my experience but when you are unwell you don't care about being lonely all you care care about is is doing everything that the voice or the person in your head is telling you to do so you know you stop caring what you look like you stop caring about you're going to see your friends and your family um you know i I finished a long-term relationship because i couldn't keep it up because you don't you don't care because you aren't the person that you you were before yeah totally You're, you're somebody else and it's funny actually, but when I look back, there's huge periods of that five years I can't remember. Right. My memory is blank. Um, and I think that's to do with your brain stops functioning properly. Um, and it's kind of protective. Your brain doesn't want to remember things that were a wee bit horrible. Sure. So that's a lot of gone. And people will tell me things that happened, like good things as well. And I'll be like, no. Right. <laughs> no so um, yeah, I was very lonely and isolated, but I was very lucky because I found through a university support group an amazing girl um, who had recovered and was healthy and happy and basically had the life that I thought, God, that's amazing. And she came around most nights. She spoke to my flatmates about how to cook for, like, cook for me, put my portion sizes out. They had my sports equipment they did my meals without those girls I would not have survived there's no way and did, did you meet them sort of straight after your appointment you said you'd went to the NHS and you know next uh-huh. appointment two months what was the time frame after that first appointment to then you know the, the girls giving you such good support so they've been trying to help so my, my housemates have been trying to help me for months but I, nobody can get better until they're ready to recover Sure. So sure. Um, it was just after the appointment, I looked online and I found this group of predominantly women who had a kind of voluntary-led support group. Um, and they were amazing. They helped me kind of keep accountable to a food plan I wrote for myself, which wasn't calorie counted, but I found one of my old diaries. And it must have been about 4,000 calories a day that I was eating from nothing. Um that, and it had foods that I was scared of every day. I drank a lot of fridge milkshakes. I remember that like a lot. <laughs> but, it, but it was it was certainly needed though, like one hundred percent. So that's the thing. that time frame, you said, you know, you decided you had that trigger. Two months later, was the next appointment. How did it? How did the recovery process happen from there? You know, obviously it snowballed from there. But could you talk us through yeah. how? At what point did you feel? perhaps from then to 100% completely recovered? Um, it was it was absolute hell at first. It was hell. It was every single time you'd go to 
eat something or I didn't have a car so I cycled everywhere or not cycle and take the bus it was like somebody screaming at you it was hell right. absolute hell. Um, and alongside that you get physical symptoms in recovery nobody tells you about so you get these mad hot flushes you get a lot of bloating um, you, you put fat on in quite a classical recovery pattern so most of your fat will go abdominal because it's trying to protect your organs and your important bits and keep you warm basically sure. and you actually see that in some girls that have got very lean in prep when they start to put fat back on if you yeah. have a wee look and it's to do with um, hormone fluctuations but it's quite similar there's quite a lot of similarity to that um i also experienced extreme hunger so i would um i went through a period of a couple of months of binge eating and it was just once you start eating you just can't stop and it you but you feel hungry and again it's your leptin and ghrelin kicking back in sure. and it it's quite similar to post-show so it's that kind of feeling yeah um, and it's it's horrendous and nobody tells you that's going to happen and you think you're crazy because you're like i put this weight on i'm eating loads i cannot be hungry because six months ago i was living on nothing sure and in your head and you're like and i was fine and you were not fine <laughs> but <laughs> yeah 100 but just it's like i'll never be able to relate to going through that of course i can relate to the send of prep and how it feels coming out of it so if you were to perhaps like that that post-show period where your hunger's unreal i mean how long did was that there for you when you were in recovery versus say you know post-show it might be there for two three weeks and then people can kind of get a handle on it but when you're recovering um from what you were going through like how long was that hunger there for much longer much longer and the guilt was a lot worse because it was the first time i mean i'd never dieted before i was anorexic ever and i'd never restricted my food and now it was like the portions that i knew was a normal portion just wasn't enough food and i would say it was about a, it took about a year of me being weight restored so up to a healthy bmi for that to go right that's insane yeah because so it it was like i'd go out for dinner with my family and they'd be like this is great you're having a normal meal and i'd be like this is horrendous because i'm gonna go home and i know i'm gonna have to eat because i'm still starving yeah yeah 100 and it, it oh and it, it was it was really really hard but it did get better and it did begin to settle and i think actually the hardest point was getting away from any kind of food plan so I had my recovery plan for ages, which was really structured. It's healthy, but it was structure. And then I thought, do you know what? I want to go to Australia for a few months. I can't have this. You know, I don't know when I'm going to need to eat. And I was back running again. I did some running, but it was actually that time I started weightlifting. Um, and I was kind of like, I want to be able to eat what I want. I want to be able to be a bit more flexible. And so I just stopped following any kind of a plan. I didn't track anything. I ate satiety for about two years, completely food freedom. And it wasn't until then that I think I felt recovered. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point. Uh, I was going to ask you the question of, you know, why is it not perhaps a good idea to, 
to jump straight into a bodybuilding show if you are not fully recovered. But you kind of just said it there that from well, this again, this is all about your your experience yourself. But I think coming away from a meal plan and, and eating to satiety is something that a lot of people won't do, and they'll think that oh, I'll do this bodybuilding show and it'll it'll help save me. And when real realistically, it's probably gonna make it worse because you become even more restricted. And I couldn't imagine someone jumping into a prep having the hunger levels that you described and then saying oh no actually I can't eat it just it just wouldn't work but you mentioned uh, about the sort of binge eating and we know that in within the realms of bodybuilding that there is a major difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating and mm-hmm. I might be sounding a bit pedantic there but there'll be someone listening that kind of goes well I'm not really too sure the difference between the two of them so I was wondering, could you give the listeners out there, a, you know, in layman's terms, an example of the difference between an eating disorder, disordered eating, but perhaps what after, after that's done, explain the different strategies from your experience that you could do to overcome them both? Sure. So if we start with, I mean, if a patient came to see me in practice and, or a mum came to see me and said, my child has odd eating behaviours you know, I want to know what I should do. I want to know if they might be anorexic. It's it's a diagnosis which is based on the ICD-10 criteria or the DSM-5, depending on where you work. Um, so it's a psychiatric mental health problem, basically. Sure. So it's not just restriction of food um, and only having specific food groups. It tends to be also a preoccupation with body habitus. So the way you look in the mirror... Um, and obsessive thoughts about food, about restricting food. Um, and alongside that, there's certain physical symptoms, so kind of physical anxiety around food. Um, girls who are anorexic, quite a lot of body hair. I don't want to stroke my arm there, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, they won't see that. They won't see that, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, well, that way. Um, which we call um, lanugo, which is kind of fine hair. And again, it's like a protective thing that the body grows when you're anorexic. You get a very low resting heart rate, problems with blood pressure, um, periods start to stop. Um, And often the child or teenager, and I'm saying that because it, it does tend to be when it develops, becomes very secretive about their food. So... They'll want to be, they'll get really annoyed if you walk in and they're in the kitchen. Right. They'll get out of the kitchen, I'm making my meal. They won't want you to sit with them while they're eating and they won't want anyone to kind of watch them eat or know what they've had. Um, so that's kind of some of the factors you might think about for somebody with anorexia. Binge eating... Um, and bulimia are different things so bulimia does tend to be if somebody has binge eating patterns and then a compensatory behaviour so that can be purging so the use of laxatives or vomiting or it can be um, exercise purging so trying to make up kind of the calorie um, requirements or whatever that they've binged on sure Again, they're diagnosed primarily by psychiatrists, um, but it's, it's, it is a grey area. Um, and the best way that we know for people to get better from these things are CBT, so therapy, talking therapies. Um, 
But in my experience, for somebody, in regards to anorexia, for me to have recovered, I had to be weight restored before my brain started working properly. Like, I couldn't, I shouldn't have been allowed to make my own choices about food until I was weight restored. How much weight did you gain? To be fully restored um, from from your lowest weight till you were restored, just to give the listeners an idea. Um, so I'm not a big person, so I sit around forty five kilos. I'm only five foot, um, forty five, forty six. So I was about thirty two kilos. Wow, that's low. Yeah, so I think my BMI was about thirteen at the time. By the way, if you go on Rosie's Instagram, she doesn't look forty five kilos. She's got bigger quads <laughs> than me, right? Um, but no, that's that that's awesome, right? So we've got eating disorders, and now we've got disordered eating. Now, disordered eating, I think, is very, very common. And I think um, I think in the bodybuilding realm, almost all bodybuilders will have some slightly disordered eating patterns. Now, I think when it becomes a problem is when it starts to affect your relationships, um, affect your health, and affect your general well-being. So what I mean by that is if it affects your relationships, say you can't, if you're on a very strict prep, maybe it's different, but after prep, in your normal life, your off-season, you can't go out for a meal with your family. Um, you would get worried if you'd left your food at home and you had to go and buy something in a supermarket. Um, you'd get really upset if you couldn't train um, and you'd still get guilt around eating foods that you deemed as unclean or unhealthy. Um, those sort of things, which I think are very common after a prep. And I do think that's why having some flexibility is really important between shows. 100%. And, um, to kind of realise that you are just a human. We're all the, pretty much the same. We all work very similarly. <laughs> and... You know, the food is is just fuel for your body. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't like it, maybe you digest it well, maybe you don't. But, you know, we're all sort of the same. And now, you're not special because you're a bodybuilder. What, what's interesting is everything that you just said was me in 2016, 2017's prep. And that oh. was, like, to the point where I used to eat like a bro, right? Because I thought that's what you had to do. My previous coach I worked with, it was chicken and brown rice, it was chicken, sweet potato, and it was mincing, white potato, that was it, or oats and eggs. And I ate that way for a year and a half. And it got to the point where, like, I'd go to my mum's on a Sunday to have, like, dinner, but I'd had my quote-unquote cheat meal on the Friday, so I would take my chicken and sweet potato to my mum's whilst they ate their Sunday roast. And I look back and I think, what a fucking idiot. But everything you just said about being raging if you can't train eating food that's off plan and feeling good. Like, at the time, I I went through it all. And I think that, kind of like for me, I had to go through it all to now be able to say to clients, well, listen, stop thinking like that. This like We're not going to do that. Carbs are carb, blah, blah, flexibility. Bagel's okay, a bit of chocolate's okay. Um, but everything you just said there, I was like, technically, I had disordered eating back then. Um, and, and if you think about it, it's it's completely normal to feel like that after, especially quite a long prep. And if, if it was like for yourself, you've been dieting for a long time. It's almost like it, it's almost like a patient that I've had in hospital who's been there for nine months because they've been really unwell. And they've been used to getting their drugs and their food at all these times. 
And then suddenly I say, right, okay, you're going home now. And they think, yay, on one hand, but then also, Jesus Christ, what am I going to do? You know, yeah. I'm not going to be brought my porridge at 6am. Do I just have porridge? Can I have this? Can I, what can I do? And do it, you know, I, I did that for ages and then I looked like that and that was great. So if I don't have that, am I going to look different? Is it going to affect my body? Is it, what's the right thing to do? And the thing is, there, there's no right thing and wrong thing. And I think it's learning that. So for some people, they do need a food plan. I stick to a basic meal plan with flexibility year round, but it's very flexible. And that's simply because I work so much and I'm out the house all day that if I don't food prep, I won't have any food. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that's why I do it. Totally. Um, but then like tonight we're going out to friends for dinner um, and wine and things and that's something I could have never done years ago but it took me a while I was like you as well to think all right so I've done that a couple of nights a week for the last couple of months my training's great I still look okay I'm healthy my blood tests are perfect so maybe there is something to be said for including a bit of everything yeah. and it stopped it stopped me wanting to binge eat because I could have I knew if I wanted to have you know, if I want some chocolate, I'll have some. I have some most days, yeah. but I, I don't feel the need to go and eat all of it because I know I can have some tomorrow. And if I eat all of it, then I won't be able to have any tomorrow. And that's really sad. <laughs> but, like, but it takes such a long time. And it's the guilt and the shame that people feel. And they feel like they're no longer an athlete because they want to go out and have dinner with their wife or their husband. Man, and you're like, 100%. And it, do you know, and it's crazy. I think that there's a there's a certain like camp in the bodybuilding realms that's like, I'm the hardest worker in the room, and you know I'm a bro, and this is why I don't do that and do that, and like it was sad that I was I, that was me at one point, but this prep this year I just made sure like me and my fiance went out six times in eight weeks. I only done an eight week prep, um, just for a photo shoot, but we went out six times in eight weeks just to try and show people that, you know, by the way you don't need to eat out Tupperware and. Uh, next mm-hmm. year we're going on holiday and I'll be two weeks out um, mm-hmm. again just to, not just for that but it will show people that you know perhaps what I used to think like was I need to lock myself in my room eat with Tupperware and that means I'm the hardest worker in the room and that means I'll do well when it, it just wasn't the case um, now less about me more about you so what I'm going to do if we can is still have what we've been discussing in the realms of the episode but just link it with something we see very common within particularly the bodybuilding realms, but more so with females. And often that will be gut problems. Now, yeah. we know they're really, really common, but could you give someone perhaps who's listening an insight? Like, there'll be someone out there who's never done a prep before and they're thinking, well, what gut problems are you meaning? What, what are you talking about? So perhaps give them an idea of, well, what sort of gut problems are we, we thinking about or, or are common? And then, you know, why are perhaps these occurring? Sure. So I think if we talk about problems in a diet and then after a diet, so I can remember, and it's almost glamorized on the Instagram and it annoys me because I was like this. I think it was, I think I've done six or seven preps now and it must have been one of my first ones that I discovered like sugar-free jelly and sweetener and all of these things, I was like, brilliant. You know, week one of prep, just literally filled my cupboards with everything made of sucralose and artificialist and that, and was like, brill. Yeah. And, like, 
I didn't really have a lot of that stuff usually. So I was eating a lot more food volume, but a lot more sugar alcohols, um, which are basically sweeteners. They're in sweeteners. Um, and almost immediately, my weight went way up. I couldn't understand why. I was so bloated and gassy and quite constipated as well. And it was just horrendous. And I had this great big full tummy, which was still hungry, but it was full of like just nonsense. Um, and it, I think that is so common in bodybuilding, especially among females, because they want to make their fairly bland diet. Because I mean, towards the end, it is quite bland. They want to make it taste better and they want to feel full. And I think now when my diet does, luckily I, I can diet on fairly high calories and my coach is very good with me. But, you know, you're going to be hungry. And in my head, it's better just to be hungry than to use all of these things, which will give you this really odd feeling in your stomach, which isn't fullness, isn't satiety. And also, I don't know if you notice this, but if I have something like really sweetened, it makes me hungrier. Yeah, 100%. Because you you get that little bit. It's not quite a full shebang, but you get that little bit and it makes you want more. But yeah. I think what's interesting is that it, it, it not only, obviously, it came about three, four years ago, but it, it's getting worse. Like, with new clients that come on board, mm. you, you see it all the time, oh, my stomach's always been like this, and then you look at well, the... Well, girls have highlights for, like, prep hacks, and it's like, here, eat, like, a kilo of raw vegetables covered in candorel. You're welcome. <laughs> You're sort of like, you are meant to be an athlete. I don't care... I think bodybuilding is a proper sport and I consider people who compete athletes. And if you're an athlete, that's not the kind of message you should be putting across, I don't think. I would agree. But I know it's not a healthy sport. We don't do it for health. I'm definitely not in peak physical health when I'm standing on stage. But you should do it as healthy, healthily as possible and maybe not encourage the new generation of people that are going to compete to go and do things like that because a lot of these girls have a lot of followers and it just makes me quite concerned um about their long-term like digestive habits so i think that's one thing so yeah things to think about during your prep diet keep keep enough carbohydrate in and enough fiber of all different kinds of fiber in your diet as long as you can because without that you are not going to digest anything one so that's soluble and insoluble fiber, both of them. Yeah. Because otherwise, it's it's, it's literally a shit show. Like I, it's. I think what well, you, what you mentioned about the fact that, for example, now you've got a bit of muscle tissue about you, which allows you to diet on higher calories. If we think about a be- beginner bikini girl that's perhaps competing in her first year, she's not gonna have much tissue. She's certainly gonna have as much tissue as yourself. So the calories sometimes have to go silly low, but. Yeah ultimately to get condition they need to go there so i guess that's what stems from what i try to preach is that, that you never feel full and when you know no. what you know what just get on with it just, yeah. you know what i mean like for me being an online coach i just work i just work 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 work, work until the alarm goes off till my next when i'm supposed to eat yeah. again um, you're gonna get brain fog you're not gonna feel full and you're not going to feel healthy and you need to understand that you know, that's a short-term phase and hopefully won't last that long. But that's what you need to do to, to get conditioned. Um, 
I would say also for myself, I don't ever compete um, or diet hard when I'm, I've got on calls or night shifts um, or any periods of time I'm holding in a rest page. So that means like I'm part of the arrest team in the hospital. Sure. So I, I will not plan a show when my work, because I don't get to choose my shift. So if I've got shifts that go over a show I want to do, I don't do the show. No. Because I, I I can't be like I'm too tired to run to that arrest. Like yeah, that's... I think that that kind of shows exactly who you are as a person and the fact that like medicine for you, I'm just saying medicine is a general term for doctors and everything like that, is like number one priority and bodybuilding second. I think I, I just think that's amazing because you wouldn't often get many competitors that'll put anyone's else needs above their own. But the fact that you know, let's say the British finals falls on a time that you've got the night shifts or the, the rests you can't do it and you just go cool that's no worries i can't do it so by the way just want to say massive respect on that one for you before we get into that though we said about you you mentioned sort of digestive issues in prep and then perhaps after it yeah so, so after it, what can we see sure so post prep um this is just my experience you often a lot of competitors will go for a big heavy meal after their show um, and obviously they'll be quite bloated and retain a bit of water whatever feel a bit puffy after that um, if you manage to get back onto your recovery diet so get your calories back up you'll notice that your bowel habits start to go a bit wild so that's basically because your gut hasn't had very much in it um, even if it has been full of cucumber and candorel, like it's not <laughs> it's not had much like substance in it and suddenly it's getting all this carb, all this fat, and it just goes a bit wild. So you're going to get quite a lot of gas. You're going to get sometimes diarrhea and just more frequent bowel habits. You'll need to go to the toilet a lot more than you were. And a lot of people then freak out and think, this is something that's wrong with me. You know, I've got IBS, like, or I've got blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, this is your digestive system waking back up again. Yeah. You know, in the same way that, your resting heart rate will start to go back up again. Yeah, and I, I think that if we use just females as an example and the beginners, that if the calories are that low going into prep, that coming out, if they go from, let's say, someone's had to average it, I had Clara averaging at 900 or 850, mm-hmm. and then, now we reversed her out, it was fine, we actually reversed her into the finals, but let's say it's perhaps, and, and we, we've all done it, had a shit rebound, our very first show, put on a copious amount of weight in a short period of time, but if you go from eating, say, 900 calories as an average to, like, 2,000 plus, 2,500, 3,000 plus, of course you're going to get those symptoms. But I just thought it was great for you to to give that from personal experience. Now, what sort of strategies would you suggest to someone who is going through that or perhaps is perhaps coming out of their first show, maybe, maybe not this time of year because it's December, but, hey, it's competitive season starting within March, post-show what would you be your advice to a female out there first show rebounding what, what would you say so post-show um i think you really need to and it's a cliche but you need to be kind to yourself and understand how hard your body's works um you need to expect to feel absolutely knackered for a couple of weeks and that's completely normal and it's almost like if you remember studying for exams and you'd be really alert up on the ball right up until exam day. And then I would always get flu straight after. I'd be absolutely wiped out. Like I'd go out partying the night after and then I would literally be 
a dead person for two weeks. And it's all the adrenaline. It's a big come down. You know, if it's your first show, maybe it's the most exciting thing you've ever done. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's all your, your body knows that. So that, that's all going to come out. So you need to really plan a bit of downtime. You can train if you want to. I normally do. But I think if you're a first timer, go in light, but keep moving. So go out for walks, get a bit of cardio in, just keep your body moving. I think in terms of food, there's no perfect way. I mean, what I do, uh, which probably isn't perfect either, is I'll go out for a meal with um, a boyfriend or my coach or whoever in the evening and then I won't really track for a couple of days but I won't eat crazy things well not crazy things but I'll kind of have breakfast at home maybe go out for lunch and then we'll make something nice for dinner and if we're having treats I'll buy single ones so I'll buy a couple of chocolate bars a couple of magnums like I won't buy hordes and hordes and hordes of food because like I've done that before and I've been that person who I remember after one show actually I had so much stuff in the fridge I lived on my own um at the time and I remember literally opening the fridge eating until the fridge light went out <laughs> and then only stopping to like close it and open it again and to just keep going yeah and that I think is in my history that scared me because it felt like the extreme hunger and I was like this is awful I'm not doing this again I've been there I've done that yeah um so now i just plan treats like i plan things that i'd like to do but like going out and having cake and coffee with a friend um or going out for a meal or ordering like a takeaway with someone who isn't gonna let you order the whole of the third page <laughs> like yeah i love it i love it that you know like sensible. i spent uh, my very first show uh the morning of before driving to glasgow i live in dundee um, I went to Asda and spent 50 quid on shit mm-hmm. and then proceeded to eat all of it in that subsequent week thereafter and be bloated every night and have digestive issues and whatnot. So and you don't enjoy like, it. Like, you just don't enjoy it. So, and I also would say expect your body to look a bit funky at first. Um, I, I know that you prep assisted and non assisted athletes. I think if you're assisted and you have come off all of your assistance at once, um, you're all you're gonna look super funky. Just like so um, soft, <laughs> so soft. So, so in, in that in that way, it's sometimes a wee bit easier for natural athletes. Um, the fluctuations aren't quite as crazy. Um, but don't weigh yourself for like, I don't weigh myself for a week or ten days. Um, keep your water intake high. Keep moving. And after you've had your couple of days of freedom, I normally do a recovery diet. So. I go back up to what I think would be maintenance calories or my coach puts me on. Yeah. Um, plus, you know, a meal or two a week that I don't track. And plus, like, I don't track sauces. I don't track almond milk. I don't track, like, yeah. wee extra. Yeah. And that's freedom at first. Because yeah. you need some kind of a boundary, especially with your first show. So that's enough freedom. And it feels great. Like, it feels like loads of freedom. You're like, look at me, you know not tracking my ketchup like, <laughs> feeling like a badass because you've, you've not tracked that little thing i often yeah. i often employ the methodology i say to clients eat like an adult but i think that's the wrong terminology because the average adult in the uk is obese and has really poor eating habits so i always just say don't eat like a dick i normally say um eat like you're having dinner with your daughter oh okay that's that's a pretty good one 
Not a lot of my clients have daughters. No, or like, or somebody that looks up to you. So imagine that a wee sister, a wee brother, and you're making dinner for them. Yeah. Like, are you going to sit there and eat a whole pack of cookies after tea? Because they're going to be watching you and thinking, is that really, what were you doing? Yeah. You know, you know, be responsible. You know how to eat. You're an adult. Yeah, 100%. Now, moving on, um, off podcast, I thought this would be great to add in. Uh, you mentioned you had some sort of minor surgery, and this was actually, you said, uh, you still managed after it to prep for a show in the sort of time period and be successful. So I was just wondering if you could give us a, a an idea of perhaps what that was, because there might be someone out there who is thinking, oh, I've got this minor surgery coming up. I can actually think of a client that inquired last month. Um okay. And they're worried about, oh, maybe I won't be able to do the show. So could you tell us sort of what you went through, but also the sort of strategies that you used to ensure you maintain your muscle mass before you were able to, like, give it the beans? Sure. So um, it's completely dependent on what kind of surgery it is. Mine was actually pretty major. So um, I was pretty unwell. I've got a genetic tissue condition in my bowel. So basically... Just before finals, my whole sigmoid colon started bleeding and packed up and it was very, very painful. But I still did finals, even though it was a lot of pain. And then I had surgery two days later, That's which was mental. like a, <laughs> a six-long surgery. Not a good idea. I don't recommend that. You must that. be the hardest five-foot, 45-kilo female I've ever met. It's all right. Anyway, keep, keep going. I was like, no, no. What if I can't compete again? La, la, la. I'll be fine. Um, have some paracetamol you'd be good <laughs> <laughs> but you kind of get in that mentality of just like just fucking get it over with it'll be fine it'll be fine it'll be fine right yeah I mean it wasn't the best of ideas but it happened anyway so I had my surgery and it was about six hours um, and I had my whole well quite a lot of my sigmoid colon removed and resected um, so after that I wasn't able to walk for a week or two and then obviously I had to kind of have a liquid diet things like that for about a month um but in terms of in terms of generally keeping muscle when you're going for surgery it really depends how long you're going to be out of the gym so i was out of weight training for about a month and a half and when i did go back it was literally body weight training right. this was about this was over about 14 months ago um and i wrote a plan when i was in my hospital bed of how i was going to recover so I planned like liquidized meals, I planned bodyweight exercises that I could then progress back towards my lifts, bearing in mind I couldn't use my any abdominal force because my abs had been split and divided. Right. So I kind of tried to tailor everything to suit me. And I did that for two months. And then I contacted my coach and was like, I bet you we can't get back on stage. And he was like, all right. And he sorted, sorted things out basically. But I think general points, if you're going for a kind of planned procedure and you're going to be out of the gym for a while, um, it really depends, firstly, how much muscle mass you have. So for you to keep your muscle, you've obviously got quite a lot more muscle than I do. That's debatable. Um, for someone looks at a photo, that's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then also how quickly you're going to be able to get back in the gym. So all that I did was, I kept moving. So I did walks when I could and then graduated up. And I think the main thing is I kept a journal and a diary 
of everything I did. And I treated it like a prep. Like, I treated it like, these are your non-negotiables. Even if you're sore and tired, you get this ticked off if you want to get back to training, back to work. When I was back at work within five weeks, um, and back driving again and things, which, I mean, they, they told me it'd be three months until I was able to, to get back to work. So I was like, absolutely not. I'm going back to work bored. Um, so I, I just literally treated it like a prep. And I think because I was quite healthy before it, um, and quite strong and I did have muscle I recovered better so sure. I think if you are quite fit and healthy you do recover better you do need to keep your protein intake up so I used a lot of easy digestible proteins so I used lots of kind of whey isolates vegan proteins Greek yogurts egg whites eggs salmon things like that and um, I kept my fats high because when you're healing your tissues need fat to make the membranes make them all knit back together um so I had fats from all different sources. Um I use a lot of macadamia nut oil, lots of coconut oil, fish kind of chocolate, everything basically. I was waiting to say um, someone's out there listening thinking, She said I could go eat chocolate to recover from a surgery. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what they were thinking. There was lots of chocolate. <laughs> and yeah, I just basically I had to put my calories up quite quickly as well because when you've had a surgery it can take between 500 and 600 calories averagely depending on surgery extra your body needs a day depending how big you are sure which is quite quite a lot of food but you're not moving so you feel like you don't need to eat and you're not going to be hungry because you're on painkillers but actually you do need that and I there's a lot of girls at the moment going through breast augmentation surgery because off season tends to be that time of year that girls if they're getting boobs done go and do that yeah and a lot of girls then just don't eat very much after and it's the worst thing you can do for recovery because your body really needs those calories it's, it's kind of like they've went and got that done because they want to improve their shape for stage but the post recovery yeah. phase ultimately they've wasted away some sort of quote-unquote gains we'll call it they've made in any off-season they've had but i could only imagine what it was like for you You've obviously two days post finals. Your your drive to eat and your that signal we spoke about really high. But when you had the painkillers, did that just numb that, or was it was it still present even with the painkillers? So what do you mean? Oh, are you talking about the extreme hunger? Yeah. So just in general, we, so we know that po- we know that post show mm-hmm. we get incredibly mm-hmm. hungry. So I'm thinking you had surgery two days later, but you, then you said you're not eating a lot so you're not hungry i would just imagine that your hunger levels were still really high because you're you know well it was actually worse because for my procedure because it was a bowel operation i had to fast for oh shit 14 hours oh man i bet that was the longest 14 hours of your life yeah it was it was pretty bad but um like ideally i would have been and i would say this for anyone going through a surgery wait until a good amount after your show yeah calories up and your weight up a bit because i was very lucky with my recovery and my bloods and things were bang on but i mean on paper that is really not a good thing to do because you're already in that shocked state and you're already hydrated depleted and to then add on a surgery is a terrible idea so (laughs) i don't i do not do it i did it i had to but 
if you have like an elective procedure like a hernia repair or you know other kind of bodybuildery type surgeries do them a wee bit away from your show sure and i think that's that's pretty good advice for anyone out there now yeah i'm aware of time but i just want to pick your brain uh, a little bit more and i'm sure there's a lot of people out there that would like to hear about this question and that is to do with shift work and you know you met you know night shift itself now i i could only imagine how incredibly hard that would be and i go to bed at half past eight at night and i get up at 5 a.m right so i'm lights out me too (laughs) (laughs) but for me to try and comprehend if you're on you know let's say you're four or five weeks out but you got to do night shift you know if you could perhaps give the listeners an idea of well, how you coped? Because I'm sure there's someone listening that's thinking, I can't do a show because I do night shifts, and, and I'm not yeah. too sure. They maybe getting a bit of anxiety about it. So, how did you cope, or did you just quote unquote just get on with it? So it's really difficult. I think one of my friends, whose doctor actually had her peak week when she was on nights. Oh no! Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know how she did it, but for me, for me, it's. I try and simplify it. So I've got a couple of different strategies I use. So in terms of supplementation, um, I work with Now Foods, who are an amazing company. Plug. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are. They are amazing. And they've supported me through every prep. And I use a lot of their natural products. So I use ashwagandha from them. And I use melatonin as well. Um, and L-theanine. And I use them... I use ashwagandha throughout the day, especially on prep, up to quite high doses. How high but do you go? I try. Mm-hmm. How high do you go with the dose? Um, so I have been up to about a gram three times a day. Okay. When I'm very stressed. Yeah. Uh, and I also use melatonin when I when I work nights. So what I try and do is I mimic. I try and mirror my twelve hour period. So. The day before I start a night shift, I will get up at my normal time, but then I'll have a nap before my shift, and then I'll train. And then after I train on the drive-in, I'll listen to um, like a podcast from the morning, sure. which says good morning, and it's like morning breakfast, Radio 1. Okay. So I'll listen to that on the way in so that I think it's the morning. I'll say good morning when I get into work. People think I'm crazy. Um, and it's good strategy, though like trick your brain and I'll try and keep my meals the same throughout the 12 hours and I'll have a carb I always have a carb meal before bed anyway um I always have it helps personally it helps me sleep so I'll have a big carb meal when I get in if I've got cardio to do I'll do that on the way back from a shift and then I'll go to sleep um and when I get in is when I'll take my melatonin ZMA like my usual nighttime yeah. supplements I'll just have in the morning yeah. um what can be a problem is balancing your calories so you're really hungry the day before the shift right. so what i'll do is if, I, if i'm hungry i'll just work out my calories or my food for that 24-hour period and just divide it over that 24 hours so that if i need to eat the day before in the day before when i'm meant to be napping if i need to eat then then i'll just miss a meal on the shift and yeah. then when I get back to like it corrects itself sure. so over that week the calories are the same um it's difficult because you get a morning cortisol rush so you get in from a shift and you're really wired yeah um because your body's trying to wake up so I don't use blue light blockers 
but I do use an eye mask to sleep um and I've got blackout blackout curtains to like you don't need them at this this time of year but blackout (laughs) curtains um and I'll have like a bath or something like that when I go to bed I'm a really bad sleeper so I do tend to wake up but I try and just make myself go back to bed and accept that when I'm working nights I'm gonna be really bloody tired yeah um and I try and limit caffeine until I really really need it um and another thing that's quite good is trying to take it as a deload week if you can because my training does tend to suffer just from exhaustion and also where I work is about an hour from my house so it's it's a commute as well right um but there's no easy way of doing it I think the reason that I mean night shifts have now been are now on the top 10 cancer cause list in in the UK yeah um and it's because you're stressed you're tired people who smoke smoke more people who eat junk food eat more junk food like if you walk into a hospital ward at night it's not like daytime there's always pizza boxes sweeties like people behave differently it's not like doing your day shift at night it's completely different yeah so you mentally be prepared for that because you get cravings at 3am everyone does I, I, know, wouldn't know like mu- I wouldn't know much about that but I'm sure I'm sure I'm, <laughs> sh- I'm sure you do but the fact that you drive so you finish your shift you've got an hour to get back home but if you have cardio to do you go do it as well yeah. like I think that what you mentioned in there was you just get on with it and there's no optimal yeah. strategy and you, you like you take the supplements that will massively help but ultimately you're just going to feel like dog shit and it's probably not a week that you can hit PBs in the gym I love I love that you said take it as a deload that's that's great advice because people will often think oh but I'm on prep I should be fucking smashing it and well actually sometimes in prep, yeah. sometimes in prep you've got to back off to take two steps forward yeah. so that's class now I was waiting to wrap up and ask you your biggest lesson in life but you had a good point you were to say so crack on and then I'll ask you I actually can't remember so <laughs> <laughs> believe me that's happened that's happened loads but if you could say you, you've dropped some golden nuggets and I think for anyone that's perhaps had eating disorder in the past perhaps they've had disordered eating night, doing night shifts they've had gut health issues they should get a lot of knowledge bombs from that but in your life so far could you perhaps just tell us what is the biggest lesson that you've learned the biggest lesson um, take your time take your time I think the climate that we live in and kind of the Amazon Prime generation we're in such a rush to get things and to do things and achieve things and just take your time and the best things that you will achieve do take time you know I'm still learning and I hope I'll always be learning that's very very nice way to finish off I think that that relates a lot to bodybuilding because there'll be so many people out there that haven't competed once that want to be an IFPB pro and you kind of go it's not going to happen unless you're an absolute genetic freak it's not going to happen your first year but so many people say they want that so absolutely love it now there might be someone listening out there that perhaps wants to reach out to you um, maybe wants to know how they can get in contact with you could you just uh, tell us how someone could do that or if they should avoid if you say no no way that's totally cool (laughs) but if you want to leave your Instagram handle that's sweet I'm usually quite friendly. Um, it's Dr. Pixie Lifts on Instagram, and I'm usually fairly contactable. So. Wicked. Now, when's the next show? Or are you taking some time off? 
goodness. So I've got a busy A&E job coming up. So I think possibly the end of next year, depending. Wicked, wicked. I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> now, we'll see. for anyone listening, um, for myself, everyone at BWZ, massive thank you for today's podcast. It was awesome. Um, to anyone listening out there, we wish you both a happy new year. And whatever you do in 2020, always remember to give it the beans.